0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hi, you're on RN. I'm Amanda Vanstone. Welcome back to Counterpoint, or welcome if it's your first visit. Do you have a friend or acquaintance that just seems to think everyone would be happier if they just lived the way she or he thought appropriate? Get lost, you think, as they ramble on. So it is with nation states. They just don't usually think that they're hopeless idiots that need your advice. Okay, there are universal standards, but we can't try and make everyone think the same way on most things. Is a hero today necessarily a hero tomorrow? Probably yes. People who are giants in their time should be remembered that way. As time goes by, the world learns new things, but that doesn't make scientists from 100 years ago idiots. Perhaps we need to look at the difference between error and blame. On a different note, how did mankind develop an understanding of what creatures from the depths of the sea looked like? Well, they pieced together bits of info, carcasses washed up on the beach, skeletons. In a similar way, we figure out what black holes, millions of miles away, might actually look like. But first, to the world and its governance. The West is rightly critical of Russia and China, but let's face it, everything isn't rosy in the West either. A good, honest look at it might be in order. Shape do you think the world is in the global order? Is it a complete chaotic shambles, as you might think if you read the papers, or is there some hope? China, Russia, and the West at impossible loggerheads. What future is there? Let's have a look. Who else to talk to? But Bobo Lowe, non-resident fellow at the Lowy Institute, who has recently done a paper, "Global Order in the Shadow of the Coronavirus." China, Russia and the West. Bobo Lo, welcome back to Counterpoint.
2: Oh, it's great to join you, Amanda.
1: Ah, well, now, look, you make it all seem so simple. That's the benefit of people who've done a lot of work before. Look, the story about the West and Russia and China, if you could put it in a nutshell, had to say to someone, look, this is what I think, and you had just a couple of sentences, what would you say?
2: Well, I would say that the so-called rules-based liberal order is facing its worst crisis in decades. I would say the main reason for that crisis is not the actions of China or Russia, bad though those actions are, but it is actually mainly self-inflicted. It's because the West isn't matching its actions to the principles that it talks about. So this is disconnect between liberal principles and illiberal practices, we're not performing in a sentence.
1: Well, we could just about stop there, actually, but it's a very good point to make. You know, it's easy, isn't it, to look at the faults in others, whether you're talking about, you know, one-on-one relationships, companies you're competing with, other products, look at their faults, see what you can amplify in the public's mind as being a fault in that product. Really, the place to start is to look also at yourself, your product, your form of leadership, your form of governance, and say, how's this going? What can we do to improve yep. this? And the West isn't doing That's that, ab- is
2: it? That's absolutely right, Amanda. Look, I'm not in any way seeking to excuse Chinese and Russian actions. A lot of their actions have been reprehensible. Many of their actions have been destabilising. But the real problem is what we're doing or rather not doing. So we talk a lot about a rules-based order, but we don't know what those rules are, who sets the rules, what moral authority underpins those rules, and perhaps most important, who's abiding by those rules? Because it's all very well to criticize China and Russia, but what about the United States or Britain or other Western countries? Are they matching up to those principles? And a lot of countries in the world see the United States under Donald Trump, and they're thinking, is this the guy who is the chief representative of a liberal rules-based international order? And they laugh a hollow laugh.
1: Yeah, no, I get that. But to be fair, Bobo, I've never thought that an American president spoke for me. (laughs) That's a position I think they've taken upon themselves, you know, or been given by other Western countries. You know, you're the leader of the free world usually said by people who want money from them or want them to, you know, use their defence forces. Yeah. But largely, really, all of us should be saying, well, you know, if that's a big kid on the block, but I'm on the block and I've got some yeah. responsibility too. So let's look at that, the other yeah. countries. Now, yeah. I did see recently an idea, I think came out of the UK, that we yeah. have maybe instead of a G7, G8, a D10, yeah. that is yeah. bring together yeah. democracies. And really say to some of these people, look, I hate to say this, it's almost what Trump said to the Germans, and that is, mm. listen, you've got the money, you've got to pay up for NATO. Yeah. And I think yeah. it's about time we, Australia, and other middle and smaller democracies said, well, we've got a role to play here and we need to encourage everyone to stand up and not just be spectators at this US, look, China, a, Russia thing.
2: Look, that's a very fair point, and it's a point that democratic presidents and... Secretaries of State and Secretaries of Defense have been saying for uh, decades, really. They talk about burden sharing, and you sort of get European defense ministers saying, yeah, 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 burden sharing, very important. And then they do the square root of sod all to actually (laughs) (laughs) meet those sharing of burdens. So the Americans do have a valid point. But the problem here is it's not just a failure of U.S. leadership. It's also growing divisions within Europe. It's also a sense that, look, the rules apply to other players, non-Western players, non-Democratic players, but they don't apply to us. So, for example, you have the invasion of Iraq. You have a two-decades-long war in Afghanistan. You have the NATO intervention in Libya in 2011. And so non-Western countries look at this, and the Europeans are just as culpable as the Americans here. They look at these sort of coalitions of the willing, if you like, and they think, hold on, why don't the rules of international order apply to them as they apply to us. Now, there's a further point, Amanda, which is this. In a way, you can get away with breaking rules if what you've done turns out to be successful. But what's happened over the last two decades is one major policy failure after another. And these are not minor policy failures, these are catastrophic failures. And so what's happened is that countries like China and Russia, they think that they not only feel self-righteous, but they feel empowered by the failure of Western policy-making. So it's a combination of lack of principle plus ineptitude that is a real killer for the rules-based international order, at
1: least the Western version of it. You're on RN. This is Counterpoint. I'm Amanda Vanstone. I'm talking with Bobo Lowe, non-resident fellow at the Lowy Institute. He's in the United Kingdom. And we're talking about the world order, you know, the US, Russia, China thing. Well, you know, the rest of us have got something to do with that. Do you know, as far back as 27210, so, you know, 10, 13 years ago, an economist yeah. in Italy, Paolo Guerrieri, was saying and probably still is this was in particular in relation to the WTO and the IMF Mm -hmm. but he was saying look these international institutions I think he wasn't saying losing credibility he said have lost it because the world keeps changing economies grow and you've got big economies like the BRICS left out of a lot of this and yet the west is saying well you have to do this because the WTO says really well you know if you're not part of the decision-making, now, I get it. I get it in the sense of if you have international institutions and you join everybody up, including countries that have got nothing yeah, yeah. or not much, you know, they're, like, they're really desperate, they might form the majority. So it's not going to work where you have a system where they tell the rest of the world how the rest of the world should spend their money on them, yeah. the poor yeah. countries. Yeah. That yeah. isn't going to work. But that's not yeah. what we're talking about. We're talking about a system no, that no. includes countries who've got a legitimate right to be a part of setting the rules. Well here's the
2: thing, you see, there are two aspects of this. Look, most countries are not naive about this. They know that the dominant power, America's the sole superpower, is going to exercise certain double standard with regards to applying international rules in a rules based order. So they kind of expect that. But what you're seeing now is a disjunction between liberal principle and illiberal practice that is unprecedented. Because it's not like Donald Trump is just occasionally breaking international rules. He is doing it on a systematic basis. Consider the evidence. So he's pulled the United States, out of the Paris Climate Agreement. He's pulled them out of the World Health Organization. He's trashed the Trans-Pacific Partnership, at least American involvement in that. If he gets reelected for a second term in November, he's not going to renew the Strategic Arms Reductions Treaty, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action with Iran. So all these agreements, and many of which America played a major part in framing all these agreements he's pulling the United States out of. So countries look at this, and if the United States is not interested in international agreements, international institutions, then what sort of rules-based international order can we possibly be talking about?
1: Yeah, I get that in relation to the United States' recent actions, the one you mentioned and what that says to the rest of the world about the value of a rules-based order. Yeah, what rules? I get that. But do you really think that the problems globally now are just a function of Trump? My own view is he's just highlighted existing divisions and ineptitude that was already there. He's just highlighted.
2: Oh, absolutely. Amanda, that's certainly true. Basically, there are three factors that have really highlighted these sort of divisions that were already evident before but have really thrown a harsh spotlight on them and they are obviously the arrival of Trump but also Xi Jinping becoming paramount leader in China from 2012 and of course we're really seeing it's dark colour, if you like, with coronavirus pandemic. Coronavirus pandemic, far from bringing countries together in sort of transnational responses to meet a universal problem, has actually highlighted a me first mentality, not just in the United States, but in countries great and small. So, look, Amanda, these divisions were and these problems were evident before, but what we're seeing now is they are being exacerbated and highlighted to an unprecedented extent.
1: Indeed, that certainly is true. Can we come back to the question of the smaller, there's every democracy other than the United States, taking a larger role? You know, for many people, if you look at things individually, the answer is, Look, just take responsibility. Be a a shaper and maker of your life, not a taker of what's dished up. And I sort of sense that the middle and smaller democracies need to do that, need to say, look, these guys are not the only people on the football field. There are other people here, and this is what we think, and take charge. Well, if not charge, at least responsibility. No, take their share of
2: responsibility. The thing is this. We talk a lot about great powers, great power confrontation, great power rivalry, China, United States, Russia. You know. In fact, here's the irony, here's the paradox. Great powers have rarely been weaker in their ability to influence, let alone force, other countries to do their will. I mean, consider the evidence. You had the United States... Perhaps the greatest power the world has ever seen is losing a two decades long war against one of the most backward countries on the planet in the shape of Afghanistan. Now, the U.S. has been remarkably unsuccessful in Iraq. It has been unsuccessful with North Korea. Basically, Kim Jong-un has thumbed his nose at Trump and Americans. And other countries like Russia and China, they're not doing much better. You know, people say, oh, China is sort of defying a global trend. But in fact, China's ability to persuade others, even countries that are relatively well disposed to it, is now less than it has been for some time because its actions have offended so many countries even so-called friends and strategic partners, that really there's this blowback against China, not just by the United States, not just in Europe, but actually across many parts of the world. And so this is the problem. The great powers have rarely been more impotent. So in those yes, circumstances, look, you're a medium power. What are you going to do? You have to step up to the plate here.
1: Bobo it is always a pleasure to talk to you, and one of the great pleasures is thinkers who are prepared to challenge. Challenge us, and you do that. Thanks very much for your time.
2: Oh thank you. My pleasure.
1: Well speaking of China's influence, you know, Elvis Presley had enormous influence in the world. And you can find that out in this story. Recently I came across an article entitled Countries should mind their own business I thought that sounds alright People should mind their own business well, Countries should too then you start to think about it and You think well Oh gee I don't know Should we be out there fighting for democracy, helping other countries become democracies and fighting off their foes, in the end, you know, countries might be like people. They might feel as if they have to have some freedom to be themselves. And if you don't give them that, it's not going to work. Anyway, I'm not the one to ask about that. Stephen Walt, the Robert and Renee Belfort Professor of International Relations at Harvard is the person to speak to. And he joins us now. Stephen Walt, welcome back to Counterpoint.
3: Yeah, it's very nice to be with you again.
1: Well, look, it's happened, hasn't it, in the past that nation states get the idea that they want to do it their way. They're determined to go their way. Colonial empires were overturned in much part because the states that were part of the empires thought, no, we don't want to live that way. It's a strong force, a nation state, wanting to do it their way. So why did the United States in particular, but you could look at Russia and other countries, think it was possible to make other people think the same way they do?
3: Well, a lot of it is hubris, right? There's a tension, as you just laid out, between the idea that individual nation states are sovereign or independent, can chart their own course, can run their own affairs. And that's been a principle that's really been part of the international system for several centuries. And then the idea that some countries had that, you know, the world would really be better if more countries became like us, if they started adopting our norms, our principles, our rules. And those two principles, each of them defensible, in their own right are in some tension with one another. And certainly, you know, major powers, the strongest states in the system have a tendency to think, well, you know, it's worked really well for us. And if we can get others to do what we're doing, then they can be successful. And furthermore, the more that they share our values and share the same kinds of institutions, the more we're likely to get along with one another. So when you get a really powerful country, like the United States, one that's had a very favorable history, then it's sort of almost understandable that it begins to think, well, the more it can get other countries to become like America, the better off they will be and the better off the entire world will be. And I might add that there's one final feature here is the whole set of sort of liberal democratic values that are part of, you know, American society, part of much of the West, certainly true in Australia as well, do tend to have this universalist quality where, you know, if you have a set of principles that say all human beings should have basic rights, then all human beings everywhere should have those rights. And that may impel you to try and bring those rights to others, whether they necessarily want them right then or not.
1: Yeah, well, that's because you think you're doing the right thing, a good thing, in spreading human rights. But in doing so, you might be well, you are, in fact, subjugating the nation state's rights to the, what you see as the right of those humans. So you think you're doing a good thing. I mean, who doesn't think it's a good thing to make sure that everyone has the same rights as everyone else, that human beings are created equal? Well, I think that's a good thing to fight for. But if you do, you're going to be treading on another nation state's capacity to run itself the way it wants. But that's it's right. not only in, you know, highbrow areas... If I can call it that, like human rights, where people feel good. It's also in trade and a whole range of other areas. I mean, you refer to countries talking about the golden straitjacket, where, you know, if you wanted to get on with some of these other bigger countries like the United States, you needed to get into this straitjacket and do things their way.
3: That's right. So one of the things we've seen really over the past 25 or 30 years as globalization has taken off is that trade arrangements, say through the World Trade Organization and other trade deals, increasingly tried to force all countries into adopting essentially the same set of principles, the same set of labor practices, the same set of attitudes or policies with respect to subsidies. We increasingly tried to make it difficult for countries to protect their own local industries if they wanted to be part Part of some big multilateral trade agreement. Well, we made it easy for capital, for money to flow across borders, but we didn't necessarily make it as easy for people to move as well. So in a sense, we were trying to force all countries to resemble each other economically, not just politically, not just in the defense of basic human rights, but increasingly countries were supposed to conform to a single model for how to organize a capitalist economy. And you could make arguments for why that might be good for, say, overall global economic growth. If it lowers barriers to trade, if it allows markets to operate more efficiently, that might be good. But what it prevented was a country saying, well, we like most of that. We want to trade with others. We want to have some foreign investment. But there's certain values, there's certain principles, there's even some industries here that we think are really important to who we are, how we want to live. And therefore, we're going to do certain things to make sure that that part of our economy remains intact. Or at the very least, we want to make sure that if it does have to change, it can change slowly at a measured pace. We don't wipe out an entire industry in five years by opening it up to foreign competition. We didn't leave enough space in the international trading order for countries to be able to some degree chart their own course. I think that's one of the reasons we've seen a very powerful backlash against globalization in the United States, in Britain, and in some other countries as well, because people resented the effects of being forced into a single model, which often had very destabilizing economic and social consequences.
1: You're on RN. This is CounterPoint. I'm Amanda Vanstone. I'm talking with Stephen Walt. He's the Robin and Renee Belfer Professor of International Relations at Harvard University. He's giving two cheers to the nation state, but, you know, there's no way out of it. Individuality is a good thing. You use the example of music, which I think is a good one. You credit Elvis Presley with what you describe as a new amalgam of rhythm and blues, gospel and rockabilly, with a jolt of testosterone, that's for sure goes to England, helps inspire the Beatles who themselves lead the British invasion of the Americas in the 60s and on it goes. You know, Bob Dylan sort of joins in and then we have groups like the Birds. Isn't that an example of how globalism can work well or are you trying to use that as an example of where you think each nation state should have its own way but sort of can mix up later? There. Yeah,
3: there's really two lessons to draw from that. One is it reminds us that the mingling of cultures is beneficial in all sorts of ways. You know, it's not just the gains from trade or the fact that we can get goods from one another more cheaply and sometimes better by trading. It's also the fact that as cultural streams like music or art interact, you get new forms of creativity. We're enriched by the fact that musical influences from Africa and the Middle East and Asia have all sort of blended together in a variety of different ways.
1: That's in favor of the nation state, isn't it? Saying, yeah, keep your own culture because we'll all benefit from it.
3: That's partly true, but also it's a reminder that human beings are boundlessly creative, right? And so if you bring something from one society to another, it's not going to remain As it was when it arrived, it's going to blend in with cultural influences there, and something new is going to get created and may head back the other direction, which is really the example of rock and roll I was using there as well. So, you know, the idea that you're ever in this world going to have a single political or economic model is about as silly as saying that we're only going to have one kind of music played around the world. It'll all be, you know, one radio station, we'll all listen to the same things. That's just not the way human beings are wired. People will always be coming up with new and different things. And even if they're influenced by things from abroad, they're going to want to make it their own and retain some individuality within that.
1: Yeah. Look, I think the way you put it is, to me, just seems so obviously true that trying to get everyone to fit in one box is just never going to work. We might just have to accept that the world is a messy place and that there will be conflicts and wars and difficulties in cooperating. But if you want to get rid of all of that, you're going to have to have everyone the same and that is not a possible goal. It's just not possible to achieve and in any event it'd be a horrible place to live. So, oh, I- really, we should be pleased that nation states are reasserting their right to you know, control their own lives.
3: I think I'd agree with that with two caveats. One is the fact that going back to what you said earlier about basic human rights, I mean, I think those of us who are strongly committed to them would like to see the world make progress in that direction. We don't want to see genocides happen, but you do want to ask how rapidly you want to try and bring that miracle about. Sometimes you're better off putting pressure, making it clear what your position is, but also being patient and allowing other societies to come to an understanding that those rights need to be defended at their own pace, not going to be forced by, you know, an invasion, by regime change, by trying to impose things overnight. And I think if you see the spread of democracy in the past, it has often worked best when it was done somewhat more patiently. The second caveat I'd make is that there are some global issues, and I think climate change is the most obvious one today, where all countries are going to have to adopt certain similar practices. It's not going to be the case that you can allow most of the major powers to get really serious about controlling greenhouse gas emissions and have one or two countries say, well, we're not going to do anything on that score. So there are a handful of issues where we really do need major powers and ideally everyone to kind of get on the same page. But we have to recognize that individual countries are going to want to preserve a lot of their individual identity and autonomy. Australia is not going to become like Belgium. Belgium's not going to become like Tajikistan. Tajikistan's not going to be like China. China's not going to be like Bolivia. They're all going to retain their individual identities for quite a long time.
1: Now, I've got a final question for you. You say two cheers for state sovereignty. Why not three?
3: Oh, well, because the existence of separate nation states does have one really bad result, and that is when you have yeah. separate nation states, they're going to worry about each other. They're going to feel insecure at times, and that sometimes produces you know great conflicts and wars and certainly raises the overall temperature of world politics a lot. And when that happens, many people suffer. So a world that is made up of separate autonomous states is not a utopia. It has a downside to it. I do think that those negative consequences are reduced if countries can learn to sort of live and let live as much as possible. And part of living and letting live is allowing that, you know, we're not going to try and dictate how China runs its own society. We're not going to let China tell Australia how to run its society. We're not going to impose our will on others whenever possible. That's, to me, the best way of trying to mitigate the one real downside of a world of sovereign states, namely the fact that they get into competition with each other all too often.
1: Mm. I think I might still give them three cheers because <laughs> I understand the problems to which you refer. You're quite right, of course. But the alternative is worse. So, okay, two and a half cheers. Stephen, Walt, thank you very much for joining us again on Counterpoint.
3: Great talking with you again.
1: Far preferable to the people who want to stick their beak into your life and make you live their way are the heroes who just lead a good life. Look for me. Between the cracks, behind the light, away from me Between the battle and the fight With the focus around the world on which statues should be torn down and where should they be put? Get rid of all these people, we don't like them now. Might be a good idea to just work out how you should judge a hero. How do you work out who should be praised and who should be recognised as being a hero? got to think about it. Or we can talk to Stephen Hales, and that's what we're going to do. He's Professor and Chair of Philosophy at Bloomsburg University of Pennsylvania, and he's the author of The Myth of Luck, Philosophy, Fate, and Fortune. And he joins me now. Stephen Hales, welcome to CounterPoint.
0: Thank you. Glad to be here.
1: Well, there's a lot of statue removing in the United States, isn't there?
0: Yes, there is. There is a veritable orgy of iconoclasm going on here.
1: What is going on? I mean, somehow these people who want to tear these things down think they know better than everyone else, which is not to say I think you can just have a democratic vote, but it takes a certain type of conceit, in my view anyway, to think that somehow you know now better than anyone else and they should have known at the time and so we're going to get rid of you. But, look, let's go to the sorts of statues that have been torn down in the United States. Can you give us some examples?
0: Sure. I mean, obviously, the big flashpoint now is statues of Confederate war heroes, generals, and so forth. But they're not the only ones. I mean, it seems that once people got going on the Confederate statues, and practically anybody was game, and due to reassessment and revision, Theodore Roosevelt, Ulysses S. Grant, universities are taking previous alums off their buildings.
1: What about Abraham Lincoln? He escaped
0: no, even Abraham Lincoln, which is kind of astonishing, but I yeah. think what's happened is that there's a sort of trolling the past for any kind of statement or action that makes the person of the past look inferior to modern morality or suspect by the judgment of modern morality, and then people say, well, of course, they have to go then. They're flawed. They're imperfect. They got things wrong. And I think that's the wrong way to think about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Tell me more.
0: Well, I think if you think of morality as a kind of march of progress where we now have new and improved moral views over bad views of the past, things that we screwed up on, things that we didn't get right. Yeah. Slavery yeah. used to be fine, right? We used to think that women were inferior to men. We don't think those things anymore. If yes. that's right, then I think morality should be considered in the same kind of way that we consider the march of progress in the history of science, where Our scientific views are now closer to the truth than they were in the past. And if you think about scientists of the past, there's great ones, average ones, and terrible ones. And the great ones still deserve our respect and our veneration because of what they achieved even when they got things wrong. And Darwin did not know what the unit of natural selection was even though any modern biology undergraduate would know about DNA. But we don't say, yeah, geez, Darwin, what's wrong with that guy? How come he didn't know about DNA? We're going to knock him off his pedestal. You think, well, that's not right. (laughs) We can't expect him to have known that. Exactly. And I think we should consider moral actors of the past in the same kind of way, that knowledge is a relay race. And if somebody has carried the baton swiftly down the field and handed it off, well, they deserve a little bit of celebration for that, not criticism that they didn't carry it all the way to the finish line themselves.
1: Sure, sure. Now, you talk about looking at being wrong versus carrying the blame. In other words, at fault. What's that difference? That's a good one for people to focus on.
0: Yes, good. I think there's an important difference between right and wrong on the one hand and blameworthy and praiseworthy on the other. And people often conflate them and they're not the same idea. You might be wrong. You might get something wrong, but not be blameworthy for having done so. A classic example, I think, is a soldier in wartime who's ordered to carry out a bombing or something like that. And they follow orders very meticulously and very accurately, but unknown to them because of bad intelligence, they were friendly forces in the area. So you might say, look, they did the wrong thing by bombing their own troops, but they're not blameworthy for having done so. They followed out orders very meticulously. And the same thing for praise. You can imagine somebody who, let's say, wants to rob a bank, and they go in to rob the bank, but they screw it up, they leave with no money, and they wind up leaving identifying information. You might say, well, they did the right thing by not robbing the bank and by tipping the police off to a would-be criminal but they're not praiseworthy for it, <laughs> so.
1: No, you're on RN, this is Counterpoint. I'm Amanda Vanstone. I'm talking to Stephen Hales. He's Professor and Chair of Philosophy at Bloomsburg University of Pennsylvania. He's the author of The Myth of Luck, Philosophy, Fate and Fortune. And we're talking about how you judge a hero. You gave an example that I was quite taken with him where the wrong thing is done, but you get a good ending. And that was a thief who steals your car And so you can't jump in your car and go on your well-planned vacation. And as it turns out, your vacation house is destroyed in a natural disaster. And so, you know, you managed to live. Why? Because some creep stole your car. That doesn't mean they're praiseworthy. So it's a really good distinction to draw.
0: Yeah. And I think it's really important when we think about moral actors of the past, even when they got some things wrong, that doesn't mean they're not praiseworthy. They might still be praiseworthy, even if they got really big things wrong. And that's why I think it's so terrible to just go looking for the dumbest statement that they ever made in thousands of pages of writing and say, well, look, that's it. We're knocking down the statue.
1: That's pretty much what people are saying. I found something bad, so you're gone. I mean, Theodore Roosevelt, for example, wrote a fabulous speech far too long by today's standards. I mean, you'd go to sleep, really, but it's called A Strenuous Life. Mm-hmm. And, and it basically explains how, you know, you can walk behind everyone else in the shadows, but the real pleasure in life is to get out there in front and make an achievement and how you have to lose things to make an achievement. When I think of his speech, I struggle with the idea that anyone could think this is a bad man. He was right. a good man who did some really great things He might have stuffed Mm -hmm. up on a couple, but so what? Who hasn't? Now, where are we going here? Because, you know, if you look at progress in the world, whether it's in, you know, healthcare or the understanding of morality or space science or whatever, we keep adding to the pool of knowledge. Some people call it standing on the shoulders of giants because we've got all this information before and we get this extra bit that unlocks some magical thing and someone says, oh, you're a genius, and the properly modest genius says, well, I've been standing on the shoulders of others. Right. But now we seem to want to just crash them.
0: I think that's right. And I think there's a kind of modern hubris involved with saying, not only are we not dwarves on the shoulders of giants, but we're giants on the shoulders of the dwarfs of the past. And we can just look down on them and dismiss what they have accomplished because we are the ones who are doing everything. And... That just seems really profoundly wrong to me. And that doesn't mean that we can't criticize effectively people in the past, no, just no. as we might say of crackpot scientists in the past. Look, you weren't even minimally competent by the standards of your own day. Look, we're still going to criticize Lysenko, Andrew Wakefield, right? But
1: I well, think Wakefield's that- <laughs> errors, I think he is blameworthy back to your earlier thing. I mean, people are still anti vaxxers because of him.
0: Right. Precisely. That's exactly right. So we can say he didn't even measure up by the scientific standards of his own day. He yeah. is a bad scientist. That's why he deserves criticism. Not that he was wrong. He wasn't even minimally confident by the standards of his day. Yeah. Right? So uh, we might think where, Copernicus uh, was wrong, but you know, he was far and away above the minimum standards of his day.
1: Yeah. So I think where we've got to, if you agree with me, and I think it means that I agree with you, is that where people might now seem in a moral sense to be dwarfed by the position we've arrived at today, Mm -hmm. at the time, they were giants in their time and they took steps forward that other people wouldn't have. Without them, we wouldn't have moved forward, okay? They look small steps now and some of them were missteps, but they were still giants at their time and on that basis we should still maybe not revere them, but at least acknowledge that they were giants in their time.
0: I think that's exactly right. And what we need to do with people of the past is judge them by the standards of their own time. They are praiseworthy or blameworthy by their standards, not by our standards. By our standards, we can judge whether they were right or whether they were wrong. But praise and blame, that should be determined by the standards of their time.
1: Indeed. I quite agree. Stephen Hales, you've been a pleasure to talk to, and I can only hope that those who want to whack up some metal wire and pull down a statue, give you a quick phone call before they get carried away with their enthusiasm, and think a bit before they act, it would be a good thing. Stephen Hales, thank you very much for joining us.
0: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
1: the soapbox. I just love it. I'll tell you what I don't love. People who misuse the word humble. The people who say, oh, I'm humbled by this. Really? They are what in colloquial language rhymes with banker because they don't mean they're humbled at all. What they mean is I am a person of high and mighty and I want to look good so I'm going to say that I'm humble. A humble person doesn't need to announce that they're humble. You don't need to tell people you're a good person. If you are, they know it. And if you are a humble person, they know it. Humility is something some people have and a grace that goes with it. And some other sleazy people see that and think, oh, I'd like to have that grace and demeanour. So I will say I'm humble too. So the next time you hear someone say I'm humbled by that, have a good look. You're looking at a banker, except the first letter is different. How big a hole would we have to dig to put all the bankers not beginning with B into that hole? It would have to be a black hole.
4: Try to
1: Can you imagine what you'd see if you could go down to the depths of the ocean and maybe have a light? You'd need one. What would you see? It'd be fantastic, wouldn't it? You can imagine hundreds and hundreds of years ago, people having no idea what was out in the ocean, let alone at the depths of it, and how we managed as mankind to convey information to each other, to build pictures about what other people had seen. It's a fascinating way to look at things. That's how we had to do it. We had to put together bits and pieces. And now you think of black holes up there somewhere, sucking energy in, sucking everything in. How do we convey to each other what they might look like? We might find ourselves in the same position as people hundreds and hundreds of years ago, trying to convey to others what monsters from the deep looked like. Now we want to convey what, maybe not monsters, but big things in outer space might look like. It's a similar process. So to do that, we're going to talk to Sereka Davis, an historian of art, science and ideas at Utrecht University in the Netherlands, and incidentally, author of Renaissance Ethnography and the Invention of the Human, New Worlds, Maps and Monsters. Zarekha Davis, welcome to Counterpoint.
4: Thank you very much for having me.
1: I have to ask, what made you say, ah, I'm going to do an article that will bring together the way we, in the past, hundreds of years ago, 1500s, 1400s, described monsters from the deep with the way we now describe or try to black holes?
4: Well, for a couple of years, I'd been thinking about images of sea monsters as scientific Mm. diagrams. But whenever I mentioned this to historians, all they could see was fantasy, legend. Oh, look at this funny sea monster. And then about a year ago, the first image of the black hole in M87, the first image made from electromagnetic waves, was published. And I realized that the kinds of imaginative work you need to do for science today is not that different from the ways in which you had to think about deep oceanic science 500 years ago. And that was the beginning of my drawing these parallels between deep space up in the sky, as it were, and deep space under the sea. Sure. I had made comparisons between astrobiology and Renaissance mapmakers in my book. And there I was thinking about images of different kinds of peoples, of giants in Patagonia, of Brazilian cannibals, of the kind of headless beings and Amazons that Sir Walter Raleigh saw in Guyana. And there I mentioned that, well, you know, in the 16th century, people expected life at extremes of latitude, to be misshapen in some way anywhere it was really really cold like the arctic or really really hot like at the equator you know life would be different and today's astrobiologists do the same kinds of reasoning i mean nobody expects life in other galaxies to look like life on earth because it's a different climate right the gravity is different the atmosphere is different and so i'd made these parallels with outer space before in relation to humanoid life on earth and you know a long time ago i watched far too much star trek and actually went to university to be an <laughs> astrophysicist right. so perhaps the real roots are from you know the 8-year-old me watching star trek and wanting to be a galactic explorer but not really wanting to have that kind of camping experience until there are really comfy starships. You know, I'd rather, you know, work on the history of of trying to make knowledge about deep space.
1: Sure. Well, can you give us an insight into how people back in the, you know, 14, 1500s shared this information? You know, if you were there when a whale was beached, you could describe it and draw pictures of it, I suppose. But what if you were a land lover? You wouldn't have that opportunity, would you?
4: exactly so this is the challenge so if you're not even going to see your experience of something like a whale is going to be of the whale being you know beached on your local beach this is the sort of experience of seeing not a living whale swimming through water but seeing maybe a half-dead whale, maybe a half-decayed whale, perhaps simply the horn of a narwhal, not the entire body. And we have, from the 16th century, printed images in what we might today call newspapers in broadsheets Mm -hmm. of, you know, this great event. You'd have this beached whale and all of the, you know, people nearby would come to have a look at it. You might have Fishermen and whalers who happened to be nearby actually dissecting the whale because the flesh, the blubber could be burnt for fuel. There was kind of oil you could get out of that. And so one of the ways you'd know about sea animals if you didn't even travel was from these kind of little time capsules, these images of the dead animal. From You have to imagine what, you know, the live animal might look like.
1: You're on RN. This is Counterpoint. I'm Amanda Vanstone. I'm talking with Sereika Davis, an historian of art, science and ideas at Utrecht University. And we're talking about the similarities, get this, between describing ocean monsters in the 17th century and describing black holes today. And the form that's used to pass on the image makes a difference. You mentioned in your article that where people were doing it with a woodcut, that the artist would be, I don't know, limited by that or perhaps released by that technology, but it would have an effect on what image was put down.
4: Yes, indeed. You know, today we think of images of nature as being, you know, perfect photograph, Mm. the sort of thing you might see in National Geographic. But how would you make an image before you had a color camera or before you had like a video recorder? And one of the ways in which images circulated in Europe once, you know, the various forms of technologies to make printed images came together was with this thing called a print, and the earliest forms of prints were made from pieces of wood that you would carve in reverse and you know, put kind of ink on, and basically, I'm simplifying, stamp onto paper. But if you think about drawing something you can see right now out of your window by carving a piece of soft wood backwards and printing it on paper, the amount of detail you can get is not going to be the same as if, you know, we took a picture today. But then again, neither is an image of something like a black hole the same as what you see with your eyes.
1: Let's get on to the black hole. I mean, that's not a photograph, but it was a, a tremendous international conspiracy, if you like, of people working together to actually construct that sort of image.
4: The black hole image we first saw last year was a major international collaboration. I'd say it was a kind of joint effort to collect electromagnetic waves, so not within the wavelength that we can see with our eyeballs, but a different wavelength, the radio waves collected from telescopes all over the Earth. They spent about five days collecting data and then two years processing it. And the image we see is a translation, if you will, of information gathered at one wavelength and turned into information that we could see with our eyes. So we might call that kind of thing a diagram. So it's not what we see with our eyes, but it's a translation of information into something that we can organize with our eyes. In the same way that if you look through a telescope or a microscope, you see information. It's not the same as what you see with your eyes.
1: Did you ever imagine when you were studying that it would be a fair and sensible comparison, I think it is, to look at the way we would see black holes with the way people in the 16th century saw whales and sea monsters?
4: Yes, I did because both black holes and sea monsters are things in nature that are not easy for us to actually walk right up to, handle, touch, feel, smell, and see. So how do we make information about things that are at a distance? Or rather, how do we make knowledge about things that are at a distance? We need to use our imagination. So we need to make hypotheses and prototypes to try and collect whatever information we can and then join it up together. For example, okay, so black holes are invisible because they suck up visible light. Visible light can't escape. But there are other things going on around the black hole that we can collect. And equally, so you can't go to the depths of the ocean in the 16th century so how do you know what lives there? Well, sometimes, you know, if you're a sailor, you will see those animals rise to the surface. And sometimes their bodies wash up onto the sea. So you could join together something you heard about when somebody told you about what they saw at sea with carcasses that wash up, with horns that survive. And so what both black hole images and sea monster images have in common is their ways of doing science by making pictures you know you need to actually draw to think and process information and that's what they have in common they're part of a longer history of doing science using images and of course something like a microbe something like a virus or bacteria again they're invisible in the sense that our eyes can't see them, but that's simply because our apparatus, our eyeball, can't use the information that's coming from that object. But other kinds of technologies can collect that and we can use it to understand those phenomena better.
1: Sarah Davis, that's one of the most refreshing outlooks that I've had the opportunity to come across in some time, just beautifully refreshing and clean. Thank you very much for joining
4: us. Thank you for having
1: me. Well, that's the program for this week. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget, if you want to say something to us, good or bad, hop onto the ABC site, go to RN and follow the prompts to Counterpoint. In any event, until next week, this is Amanda Vanstone saying ciao, ciao.